Sandy and I uh, spent some time with, uh, with the Australians, and Matt heard that we were visiting them and said, well, since you're so close, can we, can we tag in on the end of that? We thought having endured the pain of crossing the Pacific, might as well. And uh, so here we are, and it's great to be with you. I can remember sitting in a coffee shop with, you know, your leaders, and Matt and Jacinda, and talking about this church when it was just an idea. And now look, here it is. So it's great. It's great to see you. Great to see what God is doing. Great things are ahead. So I want to start. Uh, you can start, like, if you've got a Bible. I don't know if people carry Bibles anymore, but you can pull out your phone if you've got a Bible on there and make your way to the first chapter of Ephesians. And while you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a story. A long time ago, the beginning of the third century, in North Africa, there was a young woman named Perpetua. She was from a noble Roman family. So at the time, the people who were living there were mostly Romans. Um, and her family was wealthy and politically connected and had a, a degree of power. But somebody told her about Jesus. And she was changed forever and gave her life completely and totally to Jesus. And as it happened, she was relatively recently married and had just had her first child. So she was a brand new mother and just beginning to follow Jesus. And as it ha what happened was that the Roman emperor, just at that exact moment, decided he needs, needed some scapegoats, somebody to blame for the political problems that they were going through, and he decided that it would be the Christians that would be the scapegoat. And he launched a persecution, and he kicked it off in her hometown uh, because there were a lot of Christians there. And so she and some of her friends, who were also new believers, were put into prison. And the deal was that if they would deny Jesus and make sacrifices to the Roman emperor, as if he was the god, they would be fine. But otherwise, they were to be killed. So her father, not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, came and he said, this is not a big problem. Just make the sacrifice, deny that you're a Christian, and everything will be fine. She says to her father, look at this vase. Can it be anything other than what it is? A vase. And he said, no. And she says, neither can I. I cannot be anything other than what I am, and that is a Christian. So... During her days before her trial, her father then proceeded to try every possible tactic that he could get to get her to relent. He first tried pity. Have pity on us, your mom and, and dad. Have pity on your new baby. Have pity on your husband. Then he tried other things like 
Do you realize how shameful this is for us after everything we've done for you? How can you do this to us? You know, just every kind of parent manipulation trick known to man, he pulled out. He tried crying. He tried yelling. He tried, you know, everything he could. Nothing moved her. She was unrelenting, unshakable. And so finally the day of the trial came. She's standing before the governor. Now the governor does not really want to execute the daughter who's a new mother of one of his noblemen. So he wants to get out of this fix. And the governor himself pleads with her, just make the sacrifice. Just, you know... Just compromise a little bit, and everything will be fine. She says no. Her father comes in with her baby and tries one last time. Look at your baby. This baby will not have a mother. And she said, I'm a Christian, and I only worship Jesus. And they took her and her friends to the arena where they were attacked by lions and then killed. And we know about her story because she kept a little bit of a diary of what was going on during that time, and it was picked up by some of the early preachers, the early Christian preachers, and it's been retold and retold and retold for uh, you know about 1,500 years or more. And the thing that strikes me about that story, when I read that story, I thought, like... What would I do? Like, would I be as unshakable as her? Like, would I be able to do that in the face of, like, my child right there? I, I thought, like, I don't know. I don't know if uh, I could do it. You know, you don't know, of course, until you're in it. But I wasn't sure, and I thought, how did they get so unshakable? What was it about her and the others? Because there were many, like her, did the same thing. And that led me to this passage in Ephesians, which is actually a prayer by the Apostle Paul for the believers in Ephesus. And I think it has the answer to how she got that way, and how we can get that way. This is what he says. Let's look. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, starting in verse 17. I pray that the glorious Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know Christ better. Then you will have deeper insight. You will know the confidence that he calls you to have and the glorious wealth that God's people will inherit. You will also know the unlimited greatness of his power as it works with might and strength for us, the believers. He worked with that same power in Christ when he brought him back to life and gave him the honored position, the one next to God the Father on the heavenly throne. He is far above all rulers, authorities, powers, lords, and all other names that can be named not only in this present 
world, but also in the world to come. God has put everything under the control of Christ and has made Christ the head of everything for the good of the church. The church is Christ's body and completes him as he fills everything in every way. So he's praying that they will have a supernatural confidence. He's praying that they will be unshakable. And the things he prays for, the way he breaks it down, are actually the answer to our question, how do you become unshakable? So why aren't we unshakable? Well, the first thing is, we don't know Jesus well enough. That's where he starts. I want you to know Christ better. If we knew him well enough, we would be unshakable in the face of anything and everything. Nothing could shake us. But a superficial knowledge of Jesus is not enough. That won't do it. Even a thorough knowledge of the facts and his story, that's not enough. It's not enough to know about Jesus. What he's talking about is, I want you to know Jesus. It's meant to be an experiential knowledge. It's, it's meant to be the knowledge of the way you know somebody in your family. And that requires, he says, spiritual help to know him like that. To know him like that, something has to happen to you. You can't just like decide. Something has to happen. You have to get wisdom and revelation from God. God has to send something to you that causes you to know Jesus like that. Without that, we don't really understand how much he loves us. I've seen so many times people say, yeah, yeah, God loves me. But then something happens. And God comes on them in power. And you know what they say? Almost every time. I never knew there was so much love. <laughs> They're completely overwhelmed. They're, they, like, they describe it as almost a concrete thing. It's not an idea. It's like something physical almost that they experience of his love. And without that, we don't understand how powerful he is either. If we knew him better, we would know just how much he has our life in his hands. That's what Perpetua understood. She knew my life is in his hands, and whatever comes is in his hands. She had that. If we knew him better, we would know that. If we knew him better, we would be unshakable. The second thing is, we don't, we're not unshakable because our eyes are dull to the other world, to spiritual reality. He talks about you need to be able to see this other world. There's another world, not just this life. There's a spiritual realm that's right here. When that becomes more real to you, then the ups and downs of this world become less important. You know what the Bible says? Our physical world, that's the temporary world. <laughs> it will all burn, which actually scientists would agree with. It's all going to burn. <laughs> but that other world was here first and will be here after. That's the permanent one. When, but the thing is, we don't, we don't see it that much. We don't think about it that much. Um. Part of it is we're not looking for it. You know how it is. When you buy a new car, 
suddenly you see all the cars that are just like that on the road. Now, they've actually been there all along. But you're not paying attention, so you don't see it. Well, that's kind of how it is with the spiritual world. Like, you know, if you're, if you're not kind of looking for it, if you're not kind of sensitized to it, you just go right by it and you don't see it. About 40 years ago, at the end of the Vietnam War, some of you are old enough to remember this. Most of you look to me like you weren't born yet. But uh, at the end of the Vietnam War, we had lots of refugees. And I think a bunch of them came to the U.S., but I think New Zealand got some too from Southeast Asia. And uh, so our church, being the kind of church that we are, and this is the way most vineyard churches are, we like stepped in to help the refugees. And so we had all these folks from Vietnam and Cambodia, and so we were helping them out, you know, finding them a place to live and fixing, giving them, because they came with nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. So, you know, everything from utensils to furniture to, you know, figuring out how to work the transport system, you know, we're helping them with all that stuff. And so we're kind of all involved in that. And then this one family says to one of our teams, we don't want to go by thus and so intersection because there's a tree there and there's a demon living in the tree. And our first thought was like, eh, you know, superstitious, jungle people, you know, kind of just ignored it. Just like nothing. You know, like, well, we don't know what, we don't have a box for that. We don't want... But then... Another family not connected said the same thing about the same tree. And then another one. And we started thinking, huh. It seems that they're tuned into something we're not. They're tuned into the spiritual world because they're looking for that. Which I just wonder if it isn't partly because when you have nothing in this world, you might be getting more tuned in to the other world. So for them, the spirits were as real as the pavement on the streets. But we couldn't see it. If we saw it, maybe we would see things differently. And so the apostle prays that God will open our eyes, give us revelation to see. Third, we're not unshakable because we don't understand our inheritance. He says, I want them to know the glorious wealth that God's people will inherit. If we could know that and really hang on to that, we wouldn't get shook up about all the little things. The richest family in the world ever, probably, at least in more modern times, was the Rockefeller family. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they've controlled your life in some way or other, even if you haven't. They had the world's monopoly on all the world's oil for a long time. Eventually, they broke up their monopoly and separated them into 12 big oil companies, but the Rockefellers still owned all of it. Anyway, their value at the time was about, before they broke it up, was about 300 billion dollars in today's terms. One family, 300 billion dollars U.S. Now, if you had that kind of money, 
that you were going to inherit. Do you think you would get shook up that much if your car got written off? Probably not. There's a thousand more where that came from. Like, so what? It's just stuff. We got $300 million backing us up. There's an unshakableness that comes when you know, like, you got giant backing. You know, and they were rich. I mean, the richest man in the world right now, I think, is Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, and he's worth $100 billion. So a pittance compared to the Rockefellers, $300 billion. But I'll tell you what, that is nothing compared to our inheritance in Christ. Because do you know what it says our inheritance is? It says that we will inherit the world. Not like some 5% of the world's wealth. The world. You know, a lot of people think, you know, like our ultimate destiny, sitting on the clouds, singing with angels. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you read the book, it says, no, our destiny is to rule and reign on earth with Christ and own the world. So if your destiny is to own the world, a governor, a thing, a career, doesn't mean that much. And you become unshakable. But the problem is we don't really believe it. And so we lack confidence. And lastly, we're, unsha- we're not unshakable because we don't understand the great power that's working for us. And I love this. He says there's a great power in the world and it's working for us. Not for somebody else, not even just for Jesus, but for us. It's about us. And we don't understand it. So he prays, I pray that you will understand the unlimited greatness of his power. We are not on our own. We are not on our own. Like you got to like take that home with you. We are not on our own. There is a great power in the world working right now for you. And for me, we don't have to fight this thing by ourselves. We are not defenseless in the face of the evil that surrounds us. We are not doomed to be victims with no hope and no future because there is a great, great power working in the world right now for us. And just so we know exactly what he's talking about, he spells out. Let me just explain the nature of this power. He says, first of all, it's resurrection power. Not resuscitation power, resurrection power, okay? Like, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised into a physical body, but not a mortal body. Like a new, improved version of humanity. Like kind of a superhero. And you know what? He's the prototype of what we will become. It's that kind of resurrection. I love that. I love the fact that he could just turn up in a room without using the door. I can't wait for my turn. (laughs) 
He says it's that kind of resurrection power that's working for us. Not only that, he says, this is the power that raised him to the right hand of the Father far above all authority and honor and power. The most powerful thing you can imagine, he's far above. Now, just so you get this and understand this, there are a number of places in the Bible where angels appear. If you've read the Bible, you've probably run across it, at least in the Christmas story, if nowhere else. When an angel actually appears to somebody in the Bible, they always say the same thing first. What's the first thing they always say? Don't be afraid. Why do they have to say that? Because they scare, the de- scare you to death. Like, if you actually saw a real angel, and it's not just a nice little vision in the back of your mind, but an actual see a real angel, you would be terrified. And that's what they always are. They're always terrified because there's a sense of power and holiness that's terrifying. When you get in front of something that powerful, you should be scared. I mean, think about it. One angel, just one, killed all the firstborn of Egypt in the night. One angel, just one, destroyed the army of the Assyrians in a night. The Bible says one angel could light up the world. But think about this. Well, let me put it this way. About 30 years ago, I actually was in a situation where we sort of saw an angel. I was having a men's group. I had all these young men that we were meeting, a men's group of young men. We were all in their 20s. And we were praying for one of the guys. And suddenly, in an instant, we became aware that there was an angel in the room. And I have to say it that way because it becomes inexplicable. But what happened was, there, it was a particular spot in our living room. And the guys that were close to that spot threw themselves on the ground. And I mean threw themselves on the ground and started screaming, holy, 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 as fast as they could. Like they were just terrified. And the guys that were a little bit further away, they doubled up in fetal positions and sobbed like babies. And we couldn't even talk to each other for a month. It was that terrifying. It just, it was like you thought, if this gets any closer, my skin's going to come off of my body. It's just so overwhelming. But when it says at the end of the book, there's a picture, a vision. And gathered before the throne of God is not one angel, but it says 10,000 times 10,000 angels an uncountable number, millions of them gathered before the throne of God. And when Jesus, the Lamb of God, walks in, they all fall down and worship him. So that's how much power we're talking about. And it's working for you. It's working for you. It's a greater power than everything that opposes us. 
Whatever your obstacles are, the power of the world, the power of the devil, the power of some boss that doesn't get along with you, the power of whatever, what is that? It's greater than that. It's the power that says our final victory is secured. He says, God has put everything under the control of Christ and made him the head of everything for the good of the church. Who's the church? Your answer is, we are. We are. So Jesus is the head of everything for the good of you, for the good of us. And the victory is secured. Now the war rages on, but it's already won. And when you begin to understand these things, when you understand your inheritance and you understand how much he loves you and you get to know him and you know how much power he is, then you start to become unshakable. Because then all the ups and downs, all the uncertainties, all the troubles of this world and this life are just so tiny by comparison. What does it matter? So as I was thinking about this, my conclusion was, you know, we could become unshakable. We can be like her, like Perpetua. It can be done. Of course, it's been done many times. Many unshakable people have gone before us because God did this thing in them. I stumbled upon another one as I was looking around. It was a letter written by a young Lutheran German minister who was put to death in a Nazi death camp right at the end of World War II. Not a famous one, not like Bonhoeffer or somebody else, just an unknown young minister who got crosswise of the Nazis. And he wrote a letter to his parents. And I'd like you to just listen to how he writes his parents. He's writing this letter the day before he's to be executed. And this is what he says. When this letter comes into your hands, I shall no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied our thoughts constantly for months is now about to happen. If you ask me what state I am in, I can only answer I am first in a joyous mood and second filled with a great anticipation. God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from Jesus from Christ. I am amazed. In Christ I have put my faith, and precisely today I have faith in him more firmly than ever. Then he tells his parents, look up all these Bible verses. He gives them a bunch of Bible verses to read that are about all this. And he says, look anywhere you want in the Bible, and everywhere I find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can really happen to a child of God? Of what indeed should I be afraid? Everything. Everything that till now I have done, struggled for, and accomplished has at bottom been directed to this one goal whose barrier I shall penetrate today. I have not seen or ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. For me, believing will become seeing Hope will become possession, and I shall forever share in him who is love. Should I not then be filled with anticipation? What is it all going to be like? Well, the things that up to this time I have been permitted to preach about, 
I shall now see. There will be no more secrets, nor tormenting puzzles. Today is the great day. From the beginning, I have put everything into the hands of God, and now he demands this end of me. Good. His will be done. And so, until we meet again, in the presence of the Father of light, your joyful Herman. That man was unshakable. You can be unshakable. You can be like him. We need to be in a world where everything is shaking. Where nothing is certain. There's one people that should be unshakable. And that's us. And my prayer is that we may, each and every one of us, become unshakable. I pray that indeed, as the apostle prayed for us, that we will have that insight, that wisdom, that revelation, that touch from God that will help us get there. It's worth meditating on our inheritance. It's worth meditating on the power that is working for us because it will change you and it will make you unshakable. And you too can become one of the unshakable ones.